Well, let's just get right to it today, okay? Your greatest breakthroughs with God will come through the worst experiences of your life. Your greatest breakthroughs with God will come through the worst experiences of your life. Ray Ortland said that, and it stings. It hurts, doesn't it? But it's true. And it's what we'll see in our passage today. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Our greatest breakthroughs to spiritual power will come through the worst experiences of our lives and through our weaknesses and through our sufferings. This is Christianity. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is discipleship. That's discipleship as we all are making our way to the city that is to come. And if we don't understand this, then we will be frustrated and angry and bitter and cynical and will despair of life. And who wants that? So before we read our passage, let me tell you briefly what Paul is saying here. Paul is going to keep boasting. He's been doing that. Uh, But he's going to do so in the third person today. You see, the Apostle Paul just cannot bring himself to talk about himself and to talk about his experiences because he doesn't want to be in the spotlight. So to keep boasting, to get the Corinthians' attention, he's going to talk about knowing another man, as he says, another man who was caught up to heaven, caught up to paradise, But when Paul speaks of this other man, Paul is really just talking about himself. As we saw two weeks ago, at the end of chapter 11, Paul will freely boast about having to escape the city of Damascus where his friends put him in a basket and lowered him out of a window down the city wall as he ran away, a chicken scared for his life. He will freely boast about that experience. Because it's humbling and humiliating. But when it comes to telling people about being caught up to heaven, Paul just can't do it. And so he speaks of himself in the third person. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. So recall the super apostles, that group of false teachers that have bewitched uh, a segment of this church in Corinth. The super apostles loved to talk about their mountaintop experiences and brag about all the visions and revelations and dreams that they claimed to have come from the Lord. 
And they claimed that having visions and dreams and revelations was the true test of whether one was a minister of the gospel. And since Paul never talked about visions and revelations, never talked about his mountaintop experiences, they said Paul's not the real deal. He's not an apostle because he doesn't talk about these experiences. So Paul will once again have to boast foolishly about this experience that he had, but he's going to do so in the third person. He just can't bring himself to talk about himself. So he will talk about knowing another man who was caught up to heaven. And Paul is talking about an experience that he had 14 years earlier. And Paul tells the Corinthians that he doesn't know whether he was in the body or in the spirit, but he was caught up to heaven, caught up to paradise. Now think about this. Prior to writing the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul never told the Corinthian church about this experience. He planted this church, and he never once told them that he was caught up to heaven. It's remarkable. And we'll find out in a moment why he kept his mouth shut. And when Paul mentions being caught up to the third heaven, as he says here, what he means is where God is. The first heaven is our atmosphere, where birds fly and clouds float by. The second heaven is uh, outer space, where stars and planets are. But the third heaven is where God is, wherever that is. And Paul went there, wherever there is, but he's not sure if he was in the body or if he was in the spiritual realm. And so there's a lesson here for us to learn because Paul mentions something twice. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. You see, too often Christians claim to have all the answers, don't they? And while the Bible does answer a lot of questions, it doesn't answer them all. And so we would do well to say often with Paul, I do not know. God knows. It would be good for us to say often, hey, I don't know. God knows. That's a great phrase to utter often. Why is Jesus doing what he's doing in your life right now? Often you will just have to say, I don't know. God knows. What is God doing in the life of our church body here at Grace? Sometimes we just have to say, I don't know. God knows. Get used to saying that. A whole lot of discipleship is just learning to say and being comfortable with, I don't know. God knows. And so Paul doesn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body when he went to heaven. But what he does know is that while he was there, he heard things. He heard words that he cannot utter, that he cannot speak about. Paul heard things that were so out of this world that he couldn't speak of them. And he'll give us the reason why he couldn't speak of them in a moment. But first, look at verse 5 as we're making our way. He says, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think of me more than he sees in me or hears from me. So Paul won't boast of himself, but he will boast in the third person. If he's going to boast, though, he's going to boast about his weaknesses. Why? Why? Because Paul knows 
from experience that it's our weaknesses and it's our tears and it's our pain and it's our suffering that encourage other people more than our stories of strength and victory. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Understand this, Grace. Your brokenness and your weaknesses and your suffering are of far greater value to some people than your competency and your strength. Let me say it again because we often have it backwards. Your brokenness and your weaknesses and your suffering and where you struggle are of far greater value to some people than your competency and your strength. Let that sink in because we live in a world that values competency and strength and actually looks down on weaknesses and struggle. So don't be miserly with your suffering and with your pain. Open up to others about your struggles and your weaknesses and then they can pray for you. And then people will see you enduring by God's sufficient grace and then that will encourage and comfort them and then God will be glorified. See, Paul is hesitant to speak of his mountaintop experiences. He holds them close to his chest, but he is an open book about his struggles, his pain, his sorrow, his sufferings, and his sin. Paul boasts in the things that show his weaknesses because he knows that weakness is the way that God works. Listen, weakness is the starting place for God and how he works in our lives. Paul knows that this is just vintage Jesus, strength made perfect in weakness. Paul knows his Old Testament. He knows the repeated big idea throughout the Old Testament is that God uses weak people to extend his kingdom. Weak people are all that God works with because that's all there is. And that's why Paul will only boast of his weaknesses. So that God is glorified and not him. But think about this for a moment. Paul had a very cool experience, didn't he? That we would all love to have. How many of you would love to be taken to heaven right now and to see Jesus? He was caught up to heaven. But he didn't get on Facebook and talk about it, did he? He didn't write a book about it titled, Heaven is for Real, a grown man's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back. And yes, that is a dig at that book that was popular some years back about the boy who supposedly went to heaven. Listen, according to 2 Corinthians 12, the biblical response to a trip to heaven is to keep your mouth shut about what you saw and what you heard. And as we'll see in a moment, To make sure that Paul did keep his mouth shut, he got a thorn in his flesh that never went away, no matter how many times he begged Jesus to remove it. And Paul got this thorn early in his Christian life. When Paul wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians, he's been a Christian for about 20 years. 
And about four to five years after being regenerated by the Holy Spirit on the road to Damascus, Paul received this thorn in the flesh. And so for the past 14 years, Paul has zipped his lips about what he heard when he was caught up to heaven. There's no tweets about it on Twitter, no podcasts, no book deals, no conference speaking gigs about it, no interviews with Christianity Today. Why? Well, besides the thorn that was digging into his flesh every single moment of every single day, Paul also never wanted anyone to think of him as if he were special or better or some kind of Christian superhero. He never wanted to give the impression that he was above anybody. He never wanted to toot his own horn. He never wanted to seek his own glory. And he says in verse 6 that he only wants to be known for what people could see in his life. He's just an ordinary Christian like every other person who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ. If Paul goes around bragging about this heavenly experience, it will give the impression that privileged spiritual experiences like this are the way that God's power comes into our lives. If Paul goes around talking about this trip to heaven, it's going to give the impression to others that it's these privileged experiences where we experience God's power in our lives. And that's just not true. That is, however, what the super apostles were telling the Corinthians. You need to have visions and revelations. That's how God's power comes into your life. And so by never speaking of this experience for 14 years and then reluctantly doing so in the third person, Paul is showing the Corinthians and he's showing us that God's power comes down to us, number one, in the mundane and very ordinary experiences of everyday life. Doing dishes, doing laundry, raising kids. And number two, God's power comes down to us in our suffering. That means that mountaintop experiences and church camp experiences and going to conferences and coming back with that conference high, though good and real, these experiences are not the normal platform where Paul or we experience God's grace. Paul experiences God's grace in the gutter. In the midst of broken relationships, relational strain, in suffering, in chronic pain, in sorrow. It's everyday life, everyday suffering, everyday heartbreak. These are the places where God's sufficient grace meets Paul. Not the extravagant mountaintop experiences of his life. And it's a reminder that your greatest breakthroughs with God will come through the worst experiences of your life because that's when God's grace comes and meets you. Our greatest spiritual breakthroughs will come as we are weak and when we feel like we cannot go on another day and as we suffer And as we deal with chronic pain and we never get that prayed for relief, God's grace shows up most clearly in the darkest places and the worst experiences of our lives. 
That's why God put 2 Corinthians 12 in the Bible. That's why Paul was caught up to heaven. That's why he reluctantly records this experience here so that we would have hope, so that we would have a promise to cling to, so that our weary hearts could get recalibrated when we suffer in this life. Now, of course, Paul is not complaining that he was caught up to heaven. I mean, God in his providence took Paul there. So he's not picking a fight with Jesus over this experience because Jesus is the one who invited him to get a sneak peek of it all. But Paul knows that this experience is not what caused God's power to break through into his life. God's power came into Paul's life, not through this extravagant and magnificent experience, a trip to heaven, but rather God's power came into Paul's life through suffering. God's power came through experiencing a thorn in the flesh that Paul tells us would never go away no matter how much he prayed. Look at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So what Paul heard as he got to eavesdrop on heaven was so incredible that he received a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. God knew Paul's heart. God knows the human heart that we are all prone to pride. And so Paul was given a thorn to knock the swagger out and to keep the swagger out of his step. In fact, Paul tells us two times that it was given to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul had to have a thorn in the flesh so his head wouldn't inflate with pride. What he heard was so glorious that Paul would have written a book about it and turned it into a movie if it were not for this thorn. That's how prone to pride the human heart is. And that is sobering. And so this thorn in his flesh was a permanent thing from this moment on for Paul. 14 years of thorns, permanent. It was like a tattoo. Never stopped throbbing, never stopped hurting. Paul's new normal was a throbbing thorn. It was chronic pain. That would never, ever go away. As Paul wrote these verses, he had 14 years of chronic throbbing pain. 14 years of a thorn that God never took away, no matter how much he prayed about it. But what was the thorn in the flesh that stayed in Paul for 14 years? That's the million dollar question that everyone wants to know, right? And that everyone has tried to answer. And every scholar has speculated on. There's like 15 to 20 ideas about what the thorn in the flesh was. The bottom line is that we don't know. Remember what Paul said earlier? I do not know. God knows. We don't know. And though people try to explain what Paul's thorn was, we just simply do not know. Only God knows. And Paul knows. We're just making an educated guess. It's some sort of sickness. Some people said malaria. Some people said bad eyesight, etc. Who knows what this thorn in the flesh was? So I have no idea. 
All that I know is that it was painful, it was never-ending, and Paul begged Jesus three times to take it away. And Jesus didn't. What's interesting here is the Greek word for thorn is steak, not a steak you eat, but a stake that would go through a vampire's heart. It wasn't just a thorn, which would hurt, right? It was a sharp, pointed stake in the flesh. Paul was impaled, uh, metaphorically here, by a sharp, pointed two-by-four. It was not just a little thorn, which would be terrible because we've all had a thorn stuck under our skin, right? And they can be painful and irritating. But this was a pointed stake, like something that you would impale a victim on in the Old Testament. It was not a measly old splinter that Paul is speaking of here. He says, there was this stake driven deep into my skin. But why did this metaphorical thorn, why did this pointed stake, why did it have to be what providence chose for Paul? Well, Paul tells us that there were simultaneous levels at work with this thorn in his flesh, whatever it was. Number one, he says the devil was behind it because Paul calls it a messenger of Satan. And then number two, God was behind it. So Satan was behind the thorn. He would use it to harass Paul for the rest of his life. The word harass is a present tense verb here in the Greek. It means this ongoing, never-ending thing for Paul. And so Satan stole the tagline from the Jesus Storybook Bible And he said, hey, Paul, this thorn in your flesh is my never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever thorn. (laughs) Does it hurt when I push on it, Paul? Huh? Satan meant it for evil, to harass Paul, to discourage Paul, to make him miserable. But this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever thorn was also on a much deeper level, and it takes the eyes of faith to see this, this thorn was a gift, a mercy from God to keep Paul from pride. How could this thorn be a mercy from God? How could this chronic pain be a gift from God? Well, Paul tells us that Jesus meant to use this thorn to keep Paul's head from getting too big about his trip to heaven and what he heard while he was there. So God's greater purpose of keeping Paul from being prideful takes precedence over Satan's purpose, which was to harass him and make him miserable. And we even see this in the text in verse 7, as it appears that Satan's wishes and schemes and plans for this thorn kind of get swallowed up by and sandwiched between God's purposes for Paul, because Paul says this in verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited, a messenger of Satan was given to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So God's purpose of keeping Paul from becoming prideful was the deeper reality and the purpose underneath the harassment of Satan, which is why Paul tells us that the thorn was given. It's a passive verb. This is what Greek scholars call a divine passive, that God is the hidden agent behind it all, working his purposes. And so the Lord's purposes for the thorn takes precedent and swallows up what Satan meant. 
And it's true for your life too. There will be many things in your life that Satan and others mean for evil, but God has good in mind. And that means that whatever you are suffering right now, God has good purposes in mind for you, and they will swallow up and envelop whatever Satan has in mind or whatever evil some other person has planned for you. And so it looks like this. God's purposes for your thorn, whatever that is. And then you've got Satan's dirty tricks that he's trying and what other people are trying to do. And then you've got God's purposes for your thorn, whatever that thorn is. God's purpose is the deepest reality in your suffering. Not what other people say and plan, not what the devil says and plan, but what God has in mind for you. It's true, Satan has awful plans for you. He'd kill you right now if he could. Did you know that? If the devil could walk in here with a knife and slit your throat, he would be thrilled to do it. And then he'd post a picture on Instagram. He's sick. He has awful plans for you. He wants to use what you are suffering and going through right now to discourage you and to make you doubt Jesus. But God's purposes will swallow up the devil's dirty schemes. And so believe that as you suffer. But what does it mean that the thorn was a messenger of Satan? If the thorn was given by God, why does Paul call it a messenger of Satan? Well, Sam Storms, he's an author and pastor, is very helpful when he says this. We must remember that God often uses the devil to accomplish his purposes. Although Satan and God work at cross purposes, they can both desire the same event to occur while hoping to accomplish through it antithetical results. Satan wanted to see Jesus crucified, as did God the Father, but for a different reason. The same is true in the case of Job. What Satan had hoped would destroy Job, or at least provoke him to blasphemy, God used to strengthen him. The same is true here. Although we can't be sure, it seems likely that the demon was not acting consciously in the service of God. Most likely, by God's secret and sovereign providence, this demonic spirit was dispatched to Paul, intent on oppressing and thereby hindering or even destroying his ministry. The divine design, however, was to keep Paul from sinful pride and to utilize this affliction to accomplish a higher spiritual good. And so the purpose of Satan and the messenger of Satan was to harass Paul. But God would use the thorn to keep Paul from sinful pride and to accomplish a higher spiritual good. Well, how did the messenger harass him? I think through messages. He's a messenger of Satan, so he was constantly sending Paul messages. Like, if God really cared about you, he would heal you. He'd remove the thorn. If Jesus really loved you, Paul, this wouldn't be happening. You are suffering, Paul, because you made mistakes, you sinned, you deserve all of this suffering. God is punishing you, Paul. I think those were the messages that Paul constantly heard. And so, Paul heard things in heaven that he cannot talk about, but then he constantly heard messages 
from Satan. Why? I don't know. God knows. See what I did there? The word that Paul uses to describe this harassment means to beat or to strike someone with a blow, with a fist, to punch someone. So it's a present tense verb, which tells us that this was the constant pattern in Paul's life. Continually, continuously harassed by Satan, continually punched and pounded with satanic messages nonstop over and over again. Paul experienced a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever harassment from the devil. And that's exactly why Paul says what he says in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul prayed about the thorns removal on three significant and very distinct occasions. I think Paul prayed about it many times. But there were three very specific, significant moments that he got alone with God and probably through tears begged and begged and begged Jesus to remove the thorn. And then after the third time, God told Paul in verse 9 that the thorn would stay and sufficient grace would be given. Here's what Ray Ortland says about this experience. Understandably, Paul sees two options as he looks into his future. Number one, go on living with this thorn and be less useful to Christ. Or, number two, get rid of the thorn and be more useful to Christ. He does not yet see a third option. Keep the thorn, add in God's all-sufficient grace, and become more empowered than ever before. Wow. The third option does not come naturally to us, does it? Keep the thorn, add in God's all-sufficient grace, and become more empowered, more useful to Jesus than ever before? Wow. I don't think that way. When I suffer thorns, my first thought is, pull the thorn out, Jesus, please. I'm a baby. I want relief and ease in my life. But what if God leaves the thorn and we become more useful for him? Hmm. What if God leaves the thorn and we actually become more useful for him and for his kingdom. Something to think about. Too often we want God to remove the thorn as fast as he can, don't we? I know I do. I'm admitting that. I'm a, I'm a baby, okay? I'm a baby disciple, okay? I'm in diapers, okay? Walking around the house with just diapers on like a two-year-old, looking for my passy, and I just want relief. I'm still trying to grow up. I'm always asking God to remove the thorns in the flesh from my life. I'm going to assume at least a couple of you out there do too, okay? But God might be saying to us, y'all, keep the thorn. I'll give you comfort and sufficient grace, and then I'll do a deeper work in you than if you didn't have this thorn. Trust me. My grace is sufficient. And as a result, you'll be more mature and able to pass on more of my comfort in ways that you have never even dreamed. 
See, you can even have hope if the thorn stays because God will use the thorn to produce in you what you could not produce on your own. So you can have hope that if the thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, whatever suffering you have in your life, If it stays, you can have hope because God will use that thorn, use that suffering to produce in you more Christ-likeness, which you cannot produce on your own. Listen, Paul is showing us here that Jesus doesn't often give a quick fix to our sufferings. He might, he can, and he might deliver us miraculously. And that's what we want all the time, isn't it? We want relief. But what does Jesus want for us? He wants maturity and depth and transformation. He wants depth for us when we want relief. Now, of course, we can pray and pray and pray for relief, okay? And we should. Nothing wrong with that at all. I'm not saying you can't pray about those things at all. Pray about those things. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But what if, according to his wisdom, what if the thorn stays in your life? Then what? Answer, his grace is sufficient. His grace is enough. And Jesus gives sufficient grace not to take away the thorns. He gives sufficient grace just to keep plowing ahead one day at a time, moment by moment. Jesus doesn't typically hand out quick fixes, okay? He gives sufficient grace, daily grace, daily comfort for all the thorns that are stuck deeply into our flesh. And it's in those places of loss and anguish and suffering and despair and weakness, those are the places where God, he's our only hope. We have no one else in those places. Those places of loss and anguish and suffering and despair and weakness, those are the places where God is most present. Those are the places where we experience big-time breakthroughs with God. And it's also where the deepest, most profound people in all the world can be found. It's where the most deepest and profound Christians can ever be found in those places of suffering and hardship and trial and thorn that never gets removed. People who suffer deeply are the most profound people that you will ever meet because they usually meet Jesus in those dark places. And they would tell you that they would never have chosen those places of loss and anguish and suffering and despair and weakness. They would never choose the thorn, but that's where God met them. That's where God comforted them, and they are different now. They're more profound people now. They're not shallow at all. Maybe you've been praying about your own thorns, and maybe God is saying that the third option is what you can expect. Keep the thorn, add in God's all-sufficient grace, and become more empowered and more profound than ever before. Weakness 
is where we receive his power, where we receive his all-sufficient grace. And if God tells you that the thorn stays, know that his grace will rest upon you. Anytime God gives and doesn't remove a thorn, he always gives his grace too. Every rose has its thorn, right? Some of you know that song. Probably the greatest 80s power ballad ever written. Every rose has its thorn, and every thorn has its grace. Every thorn comes with grace, sufficient grace. It's a package deal, okay? If you get a thorn, it comes with grace, which is exactly what God told Paul to reassure and to comfort him. And isn't that just like our Savior? Isn't that just like Jesus? He came to Paul and told him that he would hold his hand and sustain him as he suffered. And Jesus will do the exact same thing for you too. He will hold your hand and he will sustain you as you suffer. So Jesus told Paul and he's telling us today, your greatest breakthroughs with God will come through the worst experiences of your life. Not mountaintop experiences. Not going away to a conference and getting away with your friends for three days and coming back recharged because you know you come back to real life and, right? You come back to real life and it's gone. You're like, oh, where's that feeling I had at the conference? Welcome to real life because the conference isn't real life. The mountaintop experience is not real life. Not even getting to visit heaven will transform you like a thorn will. The thorn will transform you more than a trip to heaven. Think about that. Let me say it again. The thorn will transform you and make you a more deep and profound Christian than a trip to heaven will. Wow. That's what Paul is saying. So whatever you're going through today, whatever thorn is stuck in you, your Savior is there. He is not immune to your suffering. Look at the table before us today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Here is proof, tangible proof that you can feel and taste. Here is proof that Jesus knows what you are going through. Here we are reminded at this table that he too suffered for us. And trust me, his thorn was far more extreme than anything we ever experienced. A brutal death on the cross for our sins was his ultimate thorn. Here we have proof at this table that the God we love and worship knows what it is like to suffer. He didn't just have a thorn in his flesh. He had a stake thrust through his hands and feet on the cross. So he is not indifferent to what is happening in your life. He is your helper. He is your comforter. You don't have to panic. He is with you right now with sufficient grace in hand. And so you can trust him. If the thorn stays, you can trust him. Every thorn comes with his presence. Every thorn comes with his promise. Every thorn comes with his power. Don't listen to the messages of Satan. Listen to your Savior this morning. 
We'll unpack these words next week, but Jesus says to you today right now, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Believe that. And if you struggle to believe Jesus' words to you today because the thorn is just throbbing and it's just there and it's constant, then you can just say these words to him today in response. I believe Help my unbelief. And he will. He gave us a very simple meal to strengthen us with his sufficient grace when we are weak. He will meet you today at this table to give you all the grace you need to endure whatever in the world it is that you are going through right now. He will meet you right here today. Trust him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we... We admit we're weak. We admit that we're prideful. We admit that we sin all the time. We admit that we whine and complain and bemoan all of our weaknesses and thorns in the flesh. And uh, I guess in some ways that's to be expected as a sinner in a fallen world, Lord. We don't have the capacity and the power and the ability in our own strength to rejoice in all of these things that we experience. It can only come by your Spirit's power. And so we want to confess as we come to the table, Lord, oh, we have not measured up. We have broken your law. We have not trusted you when you have been so faithful to us, so kind. Um, We have doubted you. So we ask you to forgive us. We believe But would you help our unbelief today? Would you meet us here at this table as we eat and as we drink? Lord, we pray that your sufficient grace would come and meet us, that your power would rest upon us as we eat this very simple meal. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you understand. Thank you that you know what it means to suffer that we can come to you. All glory to you this to you this morning Jesus, all glory to you. In your name we pray. Amen.